is by uh, Chip. How do you pronounce your last name, Chip? Manshur, just like it's spelled. Uh, okay. Uh, Chip has uh, said he's retired from Sandia Lab and now living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's going to be talking to us on geothermal energy updates, the solution, a, con- a contributor, a diversion, or part of the problem. I'm going to have to take this off now. Well, if I say part of the problem, that implies that I think that there is a problem. And as we've heard many times already, our problem is our unsustainable and unfair share use of energy, especially fossil energy. And so, um, you know, I, I like to talk about one particular one that we could be using, geothermal energy. Um, it's kind of a review of what I talked about last time with some new stuff. You know, last time we asked the question, is technology the problem? If it was, we could blame technology and we could say, I'm innocent, technology made me do it. Then you stop and think, is that really right? And you have to say, no, that's wrong. Not only can we not blame technology, if I merely say, I don't make policy, it's their fault. Well, you know, that would be passing the buck. And I think we follow Jesus, not Pontius Pilate. So if technology is not the problem, then, well, we can do anything we want. Anything goes, right? Well, unfortunately, that really doesn't seem to be biblical. Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should cheek his own good, but the good of others. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is, do the energy policies we make and the energy choices we make, do they seek the good of others? So, if technology is neither the solution or the problem, where does that leave us? Well, we know as Christians that we are instructed to love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor. So, the question that we have to ask ourselves today is consuming fossil fuels that could be shared with our neighbors and our grandkids, loving thy neighbor. Or even more convicting, will God hold us accountable for the energy choices that we make? So, too often when we want to think about you know, what we'd like to see, sustainability, say, in energy, what we do is we focus on the end thing. And if we're not going to blame technology and we're not going to focus on the end, we've got to think about that path that we get from one to the other. That path needs to be biblical, not just our end goal be biblical. So if we stop and think about some examples of this, we'd say, well, think about the Good Samaritan, you know, He saw the problem. He saw the guy lying on the path. He knew what his goal was, but what did he do? Did he say, what a fallen world I live in? The government ought to do something? No, instead he took action. So the Good Samaritan was right there in the middle of that managed uh, process from getting the problem to change. What about if I say the Martin Luther King? What do you think of? I have a dream. 
Well, all of us have dreams. What made King great? Was it his ability to dream? Or was it that he knew how to manage the change from the problem to the dream? His leadership, you know, one step at a time, actually. So what is geothermal? Well, geothermal is not something new. We've had uh, hot baths back in biblical times. You know, it can be used as direct heat for greenhouses, food processing, heating homes. Currently, there are about 350,000 buildings in the United States that use heat pumps to get their uh, heating. So that's another form of geothermal. You know, geothermal can be anywhere. If the center of the Earth is about 3,000 degrees Celsius, then all I have to do is drill deep, right? Well, unfortunately, there's a trick to doing it. You have to have the right conditions down there, which is heat or temperature, permeability, and um, you know water. Well, now, it's, it's tricky to find that. would be even trickier, wouldn't it, if I found the heat, but there was no permeability. So renewability is a big word today. So let's think about the renewability of geothermal resources. It's, they're renewed in three different ways, by volcanic eruptions, by deep circulation of water, water that goes down through faults, gets heated up by magmatic intrusions, and then comes back to the surface. And it's heated up by just heat going, conducting through the rock it, itself. So the rates that these three things are happening at are 3 terawatts, 6 terawatts, and 10 terawatts. But look down here. The worldwide consumption of energy is 16 terawatts. Now, how do I know what the magmatic uh, renewability of geothermal energy is? Well, I can determine what the rate of volcanism is, what the volume of magma that comes up with a, a volcanic eruption, and from that I can calculate the rate of renewability. Unfortunately, today, though, magmatic resources are not really economic. They probably won't be in the foreseeable future. If you go way out in a time like 2050, who knows? But as we heard in the last talk, you know, that's not really something that um, will help us. So deep circulation. We call those hydrothermal resources. And uh, their renewability is determined worldwide by saying, first, what you can do is you can go to countries like the U.S. and okay, um, New Zealand, Italy, and places where we've done detailed resource assessments. And then you can look at the volcanism. And by comparing the resource assessments there and the volcanism, and then look worldwide at volcanism, you can find out what the resource potential is in other countries. So that's been, been done, and that's how we determine the renewability. Now, currently, hydrothermal resources are competitive with fossil fuels depending upon the grade of the resource. Now, what about conduction? Well, uh, conduction of geothermal heat, you can actually go and make heat flow measurements where you drill down and make temperature measurements. And if you do that, though, what you find is that that flux is very low. It's about 1% of the extraction rate that you need for a viable economic resource. So that, t that tells you if you're going to use conduction resources, what you have to do is extract stored energy, not intercept the flux that's coming you know, to the surface. Now, the efficiency that you can use any heat resource is dependent upon the temperature. So if you're going to use that conduction resource, you're going to have to drill deep to find it. Now, in general, conduction resources 
don't have inherent permeability or porosity. So what you have to do is you have to engineer the geothermal resource. You have to create it from what is down there. Engineered resources right now are in the development stage. They haven't been proven economic yet. So where are we kind of at in the use of uh, geothermal energy? Well, now I'm just going to look at hydrothermal because that's what's economic today. And if I say, what is current production? I've been looking at these little blue se sectors here for electricity and direct heat use. Now I can compare that with the amount that they're being renewed at. That's the green. And I can compare it to the entire you know, pie, the worldwide need for electricity. So what do I see here? I see a finite resource. And that's real important because if I compare geothermal with other renewable resources like wind and solar, what I find is that the renewability of those resources is so much bigger than the worldwide consumption that we don't have to worry about the finite nature. But in geothermal, the finite nature is very important. So the finite nature brings up another word, sustainability, that we have to think about. So renewability, sustainability. Well, what is renewability? Renewability, the word ought to be something about the nature of the resource the fact that it is being renewed through natural processes. However, when I say that, I need to kind of add a time scale to that because if I talk about oil and gas and I'm willing to wait geologic time scales, it could be that they would be renewed. So the time scale of renewability is important. Now, if I say a resource is you know, renewable, um, then you know, I want to know if then... You know, that really means something in terms of do I have a word that isn't just a politically correct word? Um, is it not just alternative or alternative to, to what kind of thing? So let's talk then about sustainability of geothermal resources. What can we say about them? Okay, well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. First, we have to talk about what we mean by sustainability. We've heard other definitions of that, and this is the one that I've been using. comes from the Environmental uh, Development Commission of the uh, United Nations, and it talks about meeting present needs without compromising the needs of future people. And since we have this finite resource for geothermal and the time scale is important, that's why we need to have a definition that includes time in it. Now, the... Definition needs to consider, or your understanding of sustainability needs to con consider environmental issues, economic issues, and social issues. And then whether you like it or not, you have to put some sort of time frame in here. And historically, what we've used is time frame numbers of like 100 to 300 years. Now, you might say, I don't want 300 years. I want to have something that seems like it's infinite. Well, it can't be infinite because the sun's going to run out before then. But maybe you want something that's geological time frames, you know, millions of years. Well, the problem of trying to analyze something like geothermal with millions of years as your time frame target is that we don't have the ability to do that kind of modeling and understand what our needs are and what's going to go on a million years from now. So if you artificially try to imply or demand a million type years on something like this, what you're going to do is not give adequate consideration to the people who need energy today. Okay, so what can we say then about the uh, sustainability of hydrothermal, geothermal resources where we're at today? Well, the lifetime of these magmatic intrusions is about 500,000 to a million years. 
So that's certainly a lot longer than that uh, 300-year time frame that I'd like to be able to prove. So if, if my current resources can be produced sustainably for that kind of you know, time frame, I've certainly met that um, long-term goal, and I also would expect new resources to be generated by new magmatic intrusions and new volcanism during that, that time frame. Now, here's a, a plot of one particular geothermal resource, and I'm sorry I didn't realize this wouldn't come out very well in color here, but if you look at this, this is the production, and it was rising to 1988, and then it fell significantly, and then kind of stabilized off after that. Well, what was happening was insufficient reinjection of fluid was occurring during this early phase. So this was over-exploitation. This was not sustainable use of that resource. But once reinjection was established in an adequate level, we quickly stabilized and got to what appears to be a sustainable condition. Now I say appears because we need more information and time to study this. But we've had geothermal resources working for 70 years in Italy, for 40 years in New Zealand, for 70 years in Iceland, for about 35 years in the United States. And all of these resources are continuing to produce with no signs of catastrophic decline, with a few exceptions where we didn't do it right and now we're stabilizing it. So it looks like the empirical knowledge we have of geothermal says it will be sustainable easily for the 100 and should be for the 300. But reinjection is key and it's a key to use the thing appropriately. The last time when I was here, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation and said what I care about is how much energy it takes to create this system versus how much energy it produces. And I did a quick calculation and stood up here and said, well, I can produce 300 BTUs of energy for every BTU that I use in the creation of the process. Well, you know, went back and thought about that some more, looking for the flaws in what I did. Well, I'd thought about the fuel that was used to consume, that you consumed in drilling the well. Well, you need to think about the cement that you put in there. You need to think about the steel. You need to think about the energy used to create the drill rig, to build the power plant, to the laborers that are involved in all of that. So I went back and tried to figure out what all that was, and I came that I was underestimating by a factor of two. So that would have said the difference between that the energy that goes into the raw materials in an engineered geothermal system and the heat that I get out is 150 to 1. Now, there are other things. You have to talk about maintenance during the lifetime, and you want to think about restoration at the end. But I, I haven't proven it yet, but I have every reason to believe that those are small to the energy to build the system. Okay, so in understanding geothermal energy resources, how you operate the plants, one of the things you need to think about is what I call the parasitic load. There's a lot of pumps in geothermal energy. You pump the fluid in the engineered system from under the ground to the surface. So you're going to use as much as 20% of the energy as a parasitic load in the system. And, and the reason why I, I like, you know, kind of looking at the thing this way and thinking of it as a heat engine, you know, that takes heat out of the earth, you know, puts the uh, rejection of the atmosphere and that I can draw things like this, is it allows me to take something that I think should be a simple system like geothermal, see if I can do a proper analysis of this and lay it out and say, now let's look at complex systems that we don't understand, like you know, biological production of, of ethanol. Because I 
hear or read numbers in the popular literature that ethanol gives me 1.3 gallons back for every gallon that goes in. But I'm not sure what I'm reading. Some people seem to say that what they're talking about is the equivalent of my parasitic load in ethanol. And they haven't talked about the amount of energy that goes into building the tractors, building the irrigation system, and building you know, the ethanol plant. All they're talking about is plowing the field down here. So anyway, that's the parasitic load for geothermal. Now, an important thing if we want to talk about energy return on investment is to understand the difference between that and efficiency. You know, a geothermal plant does not have a high efficiency. It's only 13%. So you might say, gee, you're not doing a very good job of managing your energy. But it turns out that any time you have a heat engine, you have this problem of Carnot efficiency in the second law of thermodynamics that you have to obey. So if you look at what the second law of thermodynamics does in terms of getting heat from here to there, it says that most of this 13% is all obeying the second law of thermodynamics. So it's not that I've done a bad job of managing my geothermal power plant, but my efficiency down here is only 13%, and I want to be upfront about that. So what is this bottom line that I think that we should come to in terms of talking about the energy that you have to invest to build and create the system versus the energy that you get back. And I'm saying that if I average and take all the energies that go into the system in terms of the raw materials, figure out how much that is, integrate that, and then sum up the number of kilowatt hours that I produce over a 30-year lifetime, I want this plant to operate for 100, I want it to operate 300, but I'm only going to put 30 years in the here because after 30 years, the discounted value of the economics doesn't give me much in return. So I use a 30-year limitation down here, and I still get a 10 to 1 return on energy investment. Now you say, that doesn't sound very high, but if I look at what they're talking about, things like um, oil shale, tar sands, we're talking numbers down there in the order of maybe 3 to 1, 5 to 1. Now, if I read in the literature on the web, what do I expect for the, my competition? Well, my competition on a daily basis is natural gas because they're the guys that are using the same drill rigs I do. Now, I read in the American Nuclear Society-type publications that they're only giving you back a 6 to 1 energy turn on investment. Now, I'm not sure I believe that number because I've just been around the oil patch you know, and long enough as an observer to su suspect that that may be wrong. But what I'm showing you is that my 10 to 1 number is in the same order as my competition. So you say, well, why aren't all those producers out there rushing to make geothermal energy? You know, there's 100 drill rigs drilling natural gas to every one for geothermal. Why don't they do that? Well, it turns out that... I'm going to give you, on average, a 15-year return in terms of when you get the energy back before when you invest it. But you invest in a gas well, and you're going to get that energy back in about three years. And everything after that is, you know, extra and over above. So the energy return on investment, the economics, you know, don't look as good for, for, for me. Also, you have the question of risk and provability. So what do I have to do to increase the, the, the provability of my engineered system, what I have to do to get the risk down so that those natural gas drilling rigs will go over and drill geothermal rigs instead. Well, the primary thing I really have to do is do a better job of developing the reservoir down here, increasing the flow through it, and managing it. So it's all about reservoir 
engineering is the trick to doing a better job in engineered geothermal systems. Okay, so now let's go back and step back and get away from geothermal a bit and say, what is the good we ought to do? These ought to be the same principles that apply to good energy management and the rest of our lives if we're Christians. So I've just kind of listed things here. We need to accept responsibility. We've sinned in our energy choices. We need to make informed decisions. We need to make rational decisions. They need to be balanced evaluations considering all the trade-offs. I'm just beginning to scratch the surface and showing you what are some of the considerations in geothermal. You know, you might want to know how much CO2 is emitted in the construction of this power plant. How much water is, is consumptively used in this power plant. Those are other trade-offs we have to talk about. They should be unbiased decisions with consideration for the disadvantaged future generations and the environment. Now, are those biblical? These are some of the verses that I think make that biblical. I'm sure you have your own verses that you would go to. So what's the geothermal scorecard in terms of, you know, are we something that you should support or not? Well, let me just highlight a few things. CO2 emissions. You know, we have minimal CO2 emissions. A good modern geothermal plant re-injects all of the produced fluid back in the ground. So the only CO2 emissions you have are what comes from the labor and lubricants or things like that during the operations of the plant or what you have to assign to the plant because of the construction phase. So, you know, we should be very high there. So I'm talking about high, not just to the end user, maybe like hydrogen cars, but high all the way back. What about, um, you know, our concern for others? Well, geothermal, if you look at it, where it's found, it's found mostly in developing countries. That's why I gave you numbers about, you know, worldwide usage, not just, you know, U.S., why do we need geothermal? Well, the last talk outlined this well, but if I may say that in 2005, I got up here and said what we had to worry about was that the growth that we could get out of oil production from non-OPEC countries could no longer meet up with the growth in demand. Well, what I'm going to tell you now is that just in the last few weeks, the IAEA for the first time has released anything where the IEA is talking about when they think a peak is going to occur, other than everyone looking back at the U.S., and they're saying the peak in non-OPEC production should occur within two years. Well, imagine what you saw as you know, prices, you know, issues that we had already when it was just because we couldn't control the market. You know, once our production starts to decline, it won't get better. Talked about energy return on investment, and I'm saying this is what I think the comparison was versus, you know, ethanol production from corn. I, sh I should have said corn before because, you know, other uh, biomice might be different. So what's the answer to that fundamental question that I asked? I can't sustainably produce all the energy that the world needs with geothermal, and I can't readily put heat in your gas tank. So geothermal cannot be the solution to the problem. Are we a contributor? Well, I'm already that. Um, we produce enough geothermal electricity in the U.S. to run the entire city of San Francisco. Uh, are we a diversion? Well, I think you become a diversion when you make false expectations that you are the solution 
And when you confuse the overall need for the kind of changes we heard about in the last you know, talk. And geothermal has never claimed that they were the whole solution to the problem. Are we part of the problem? We've already proven that we can do geothermal in an environmental friendly way and a way that is friendly to developing countries. Okay, so what, what's wrong then? You know, I, I talked a bit about the issue of how I have to compete with natural gas for, for, for rigs. Um, so what's wrong overall? Well, you know, one of the first things is we don't want to play, pay what I call replacement costs for energy. We're not willing to pay the cost that gets the energy infrastructure built for our grandkids. We want to pay the least amount of energy today based on the investments that were made in the 1950s finding all those giant oil fields. Also, too often we make decisions about energy based on emotion. Will supporting this energy alternative make me feel good? That's what we vote for. That's what we you know, like to tell our politicians to do rather than thinking about are those wise you know, choices that need to be made. The history of geothermal is, is a history of showing you that you know, trying to feel good about energy is not the way to do it, I think. Now, why is it that I'll stand up here and say that what geothermal wants is a fair playing field? And that historically, at least before the uh, 2005 energy bill, we didn't have that. Well, since we use the same drill rigs, the same people doing our work as oil and gas, by association, we're guilty. You know, when we in the 1970s had the windfall profit tax, guess what kind of leasing laws we made for geothermal? Were they favorable? Of course not. Okay, so we would like a fair playing field at least. That's, you know, getting emotion out of energy decisions. It would be nice if we could get the same kind of uh, subsidies that you get for wind and, and, and solar. And I would think maybe we deserve that because, you know, our benefits that we have, you know, maybe make it worthwhile. Does it make economic sense to the country? We pay, the country pays more in taxes. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the country gets more in, in income coming in to the federal budget from revenues on leases of geothermal sales than we're willing to invest in the development of future geothermal energy. Okay, what about ignorance? That's what most of us are in many of the energy areas that we're not working in or familiar with. Well, unfortunately, if we look back at the Torah, we find we're called to confess sins that we've made in ignorance. So ignorance is no excuse you know, for us. In the New Testament, you know, we're called to defend our base, faith based on rational arguments and be knowledgeable. I think it's fair that we should apply that same principle to apply to energy policies and decisions. Thank you. We have time for uh, one or two questions. We have about three minutes. Is would geothermal be used for electrical or space heating? Here in Klamath Falls, they do space heating. So space heating is a very viable option in the right you know, locations. Um, so it, it can be both, and it should be both, because when you have something that's only 13% efficient, you'd like to co-generate your electricity and then use the rest for other you know, productive resources. Thank you. What do you do to ensure that 
Well, the, the first thing you have to do is be willing to put that down on paper in a way that other people you know, can review it. There's, there's been a lot of... I, I found, you know, I reached, researched every word you know, association I could find with geothermal and sustainability. And most of it's talk with no you know, concrete engineering you know, behind it. But the re- each geothermal resource will have its own sustainable number. So unfortunately, you have to go through that learning experience that we had in that resource that you had up there. But the resource learning experience says next time you do a geothermal resource, you start with injectability as a primary thing to begin with. But I, you know, I think what I'm discovering is the key to sustainability is going to be the leasing re- requirements and agreements. And right now in the U.S., the way we lease resources does not support sustainability. Well, that's the 350,000 geothermal heat pumps I talked about. And you can get a four-to-one return on investment because you're taking a high-grade electricity and turning it into low-grade heat. So you can get four BTUs out of the ground for every BTU of electricity. And what you're doing is getting back that 13% that you lost when you generated you know, electricity from geothermal. Yes, the problem is you have to be willing to suffer like a five-year you know, return on your investment. So it's like investing in extra insulation in your house. Okay, we'll have to bring the conversation to an end. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Annabelle Pratt is our next speaker. She's a power research engineer at Intel Corporation and lives in uh, Hillsboro, Oregon, real close to here. Annabelle?